You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are talking A Decent Interval by Simon Brett here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. Death of the Reader on 2SER Herds. We are discussing chapters 12 to 19. Flex, we're like two-thirds way through the novel. I th- I'm pretty confident that I can solve this one. Excellent. I was, look, I was a little shaky last week, but I think, especially with how many characters Dirty Laundry we've been digging up, I'm pretty confident I got this in the bag. Excellent. Herds, we have gone through what started out feeling like a completely extraneous novel to begin with. Mm. The second half of this book seems to spend so much time dealing with Charles Paris as a character Mm -hmm. that by the time the plot actually starts happening, you're like, oh my goodness, it's a murder mystery novel. (laughs) Well, he gets kind of caught up in it, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. I mean, as the first, you know, responder on the scene of the crime, Mm. which is a lovely way to hook someone into a murder, mind you, uh, especially if they think they've done the murder. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, like we, we kind of have this very natural way of bringing Charles into the the actual murder mystery, Mm. which I really appreciate. And yeah, the focus on his character, I have not read any other Charles Paris murder mysteries, but I'm getting a very, very good picture of how incompetent he is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, obviously it it already happened, but I think that the scene where he sits down and he's like, well, goodness, if I just stayed in the crime scene and looked around for clues, that would have been far better than getting out of there and looking for help. It's like, but... Charles, you're a murder suspect. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Are you a detective or are you uh, someone who cares about someone's well-being when they've yeah. had their brains dashed on the floor? Um, yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I, I love watching Charles Paris go back and forth on his alcohol addiction because that's really what it is. Mm. Every single day he says, well, I feel really good about myself because I've decided only to have two glasses in the morning and one bottle in the evening. Yep. And then he inevitably drinks more than that even. It's terrible. The poor man is a self-destructive tank. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I do like the comparisons that we have with, for example, Dennis, who is laid out as a smoking comparison mm. to Charles's alcoholism. Yeah. And I like that there is that lens yeah. through which Charles is able to see himself. Yep. It makes him sympathetic, right? It makes it so that we through Charles Paris like understand the the problem that Dennis has and it makes us much less likely to suspect him, which I really I thought that was really clever actually. Yeah, I think he sees a kindred spirit. For how deep we are into the Charles Paris series, I think this is the thirteenth book, though don't quote really? me on that. I really should have looked I it up. I won't quote you. <laughs> um but I think that there is an excellent excellent fleshing out of characters for how deep we are into the series. Mm. Charles is built basically from the ground up, but in a way that I think having, you know, read some of the other Charles mysteries still doesn't feel recycled. Mm. We still get to know his character and deal with facets of it, but the bits that have already been established are portrayed through action and the bits that we're exploring are portrayed more through narration. For sure. And I really like that balance. Yeah, obviously with uh, Charles Paris being a reflection of the arts industry in Britain, particularly for Simon Brett, who is involved there with, you know, radio productions and TV productions and all those sorts of things, as well as his novels. It's interesting to look at Charles and say, like, why is this how Simon Brett chose to portray the modern media? Mm. Obviously, for us working in the media, we kind of have an insight and can understand it. But at the same time, it's curious to look at it and go like, oh, he's a alcoholic who can't get his life straight and this is meant to reflect 
the the world of the modern artist. Yeah, is yeah. it really that bad? Is it that bad? We don't know. Yeah. Well, that's I mean that's an interesting point that this story is not just about you know this is how the media really is, but it's also about like expectations of of youth. Um, compared to the reality, like growing up, mm. I really enjoyed. Again, she's still in the periphery of my vision here. I, Geraldine has got to have some blasted role in this story. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. But she's constantly saying, you know, like, th- like you and I, we understand the reality of yeah. being an actor, and da 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 da. And I really appreciate that. That's the angle that Simon Brett is kind of mm. is kind of taking here. Now, of course, Herds, we finally actually get to the crime scene. Thank goodness. In this, Two in thirds this of the way. Of the novel. Two thirds of the way. I think more than that through the novel because the earlier chapters are actually longer yeah. than the later chapters. One, one could argue. Uh-huh. One could argue that we did, in fact, get to the crime scene right away because um, it was there when Charles arrived. But because of Charles's character flaws and inability to notice absolutely anything, we yep. didn't actually get a description of it aside from a note about the eye, which is yes. particularly what we cover at the end of this sequence here as he goes in and convinces himself that there yes. was household bleach in her mascara. Yes, which I am inclined to believe. I think that that is a very astute observation. And Curious. In fact, we actually uh, we, we get some some kind of limited confirmation of that when we find that some corrosive substance has been on the, on the chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the chair that Katrina was uh, was seated in. I think the other thing that was very interesting about this sequence was our journey out to the PR agency. Oh, I love that scene. Because it was it was a fantastic scene, but I, I also didn't really feel like it l- led anywhere. No. Well, this is the thing. It, uh, it, it really just highlighted the fact that Katrina's move uh, into the into the the star room was you know very spur, spur of the mm. moment with her manager having to leave. Various characters have confirmed the fact that she left the building and then she came back. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's more just to show how kind of scummy the PR agency is. Really, yeah. like that's really what it's there for. That's yeah. why Simon Bres included that scene. As we were saying about Charles and his reflection of the industry, I think mm. that it gets very, very explicit in that scene, particularly when we look at him arriving in the room and thinking like, oh my goodness, they have so much power over me. And wait a minute, I'm the one with the information. Yes, yes. They're the one. He figures it out. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that changing of the dynamic is such an elegant part yes. of that scene where we still have this very disjointed perspective through Charles, but it feels so fluid because there's that realization and the carry forth is he's like, oh, right, I'm amateur detective boy. I'm the one solving the crime. I mean, it carries through from even before he meets up with her when he's composing the text Mm. and he's stressing about it. He's like, I don't understand how texts work and I take half an hour to compose one. Um, And then finally he gets the call, which is something he should be more familiar with by his own admission. But Perry just walks all over him, even though, as you say, he's yeah. supposed to be the one with the power in that scene. He, he, they're like, we'll pick you up an address. Please let us know where it is, and we'll see you at Topia. Yeah. Click. It and he gives them f- his own address. Yes. Like, what are you doing? It starts to feel it's so terrible. spy novel. It's terrible. And I absolutely love it. And he's just caught up in this whole thing. And he does. I was like, why would you give them your home address if you're trying to be discreet about this, you crazy yeah. man? What are you doing? It's so compelling. That said, the moment that clicked with me, or I want to just you know, pump my fist with with ecstatic uh, joy yes. was when, you know, he was saying, you know, all right, I have the information and I would like to speak with Miss Perry. And then he specifically says, like, I would like to speak with her without you in the room. Yes. That was the moment it was like, he's not just turned the situation around, but he's fully understood mm-hmm. that the reason why he can't get a word out of her is because her boss is there. And it, it's just another example of how well a power dynamic is laid out in that scene. Absolutely. Because there's still, you know, the boss has such a, 
profound impact on the room yep. and the way that the writing changes after he leaves the scene immediately makes that apparent. And mm-hmm. I really love it. So then, Herds, mm-hmm. we come to the pointy end of the situation. Oh, do we? We do. We have Charles Paris, mm-hmm. a broken, confused actor playing the role of an amateur detective, yep. fighting the police and, while and being the suspected <laughs> by them. Do you think that Charles Paris is actually going to beat the police to solving it? He has to. He has to. Here's the thing. I think that Ugh. like Hamlet, despite having the entire court against him and a poison blade, he's going to come out and, and realize through much harm and tribulation who the killer is and what's going on. I'm glad that and you caught on where I was leading there yes. because you obviously had that comparison to Hamlet that you were making last week and it was very curious to not necessarily see it unfold blow by blow, No, but I think, Herds, you can kind of draw some interesting yeah. parallels with what I, happens in the play and what yes. we've just read. In, in the play of Hamlet, uh, Hamlet figures out who the killer is. He tries to expose them and he's challenged to a duel and in the end, they're both stabbed by poison blades and his mother's poison. Mm. It's everybody gets poison is the point. <laughs> everybody dies at the end of Hamlet. Um, so I think that uh, I think that Mr. Charles Paris will come out on top. He will expose the murderer, but may get killed in the process or at least suffer serious injury. Okay. Uh, possibly poison themselves. Before we move on and close yeah. out this segment of the show, Herd, have you seen The Princess Bride? I haven't actually. I know that's a really terrible thing to say, but it's one okay. of those movies. I haven't seen it. Herds, promise me before next week on the show you will watch that movie and I just want you I just want to know. Okay. Do you think that there is a logical line one can draw from Hamlet through the Princess Bride through to this novel? One Maybe. complete arc of culture. Maybe. I hope look, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to watch it. <laughs> I've only seen little bits of it. I know there's like songs in it. I'm ready. I'm gonna go watch it. Alright, fantastic. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds talking a decent interval by Simon Brett, chapters twelve to nineteen. And we will be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. I am Flex. I am joined on the line right now by the incredible, the wonderful Simon Brett, the man who inspired the world of murder mystery that I now find myself neck deep in. Simon, last time we had you on the show about a year ago, uh, we were speaking about the Floating Admiral, which you provided the foreword for back when you were president of the Detection Club. And it was really... Uh, a fantastic way to come full circle for me and my murder mystery journey since your story, A Decent Interval, which we're talking about today, was one of the first mysteries that I actually actively tried to solve and I found great enjoyment in doing so. So it's, it's really an honor to have you back on the show again, Simon. Well, I'm, I'm very honored. <laughs> no, it's uh, nice to talk to you, uh, particularly in these strange times where, um, you know, communication is as important as ever it was, if not more so. Yeah. Totally. Now, uh, I wanted to get into this by, first of all, talking the last time you're on the show, you were saying that Charles Paris was inspired a lot by your experiences in working in show business. But the thing that was particularly interesting to me about A Decent Interval is it was your first return to Charles Paris after about 15 years away. So was it a particular experience? Was it a particular individual moment that pushed you over the edge to come back to Charles Paris? Or was it just the general shape of things that led you revisiting him in this modern world? I think the the reason I stopped writing them, which is part of the answer, was that I just felt I was getting further away from, you know, having my finger on the pulse of showbiz uh, because when I started writing them I was a radio producer and then a television producer and then I was working a lot 
writing for radio and television, so I was in constant contact uh, with actors and producers and all that kind of world. Um, and then I sort of thought, well, maybe I'm getting a bit far away from this because I was doing more books and less of that kind of thing. And so I thought I would leave him for a while. And it turned out to be nearly, nearly 15 years. But in that interim of 15 years, A, my wife started working for a theatre as fundraiser development manager. So I was getting lots of good sort of, you know, hot theatrical gossip from her. And also, um, you know, the whole showbiz scene had changed so much by then that you've got this, you know, this eruption of... Uh, reality shows and suddenly you know it was you weren't watching actors and with scripts written by writers you were watching ordinary members of the public yeah so i think one moment that really stands out in a decent interval to me is the scene with the pr agency which we've uh, spoken about on today's episode where there's this beautiful character dynamic going back between charles walking into the room assuming he's the one on the back foot but then slowly realizing over the course of the scene that it is in fact the people he's talking to that are on the back foot what kind of visceral experiences really lead to those fantastic character dynamics that you play out so well with Charles Paris? Um, I think it's just, you know, it's experience of life that I think we go into situations with. I mean, I think a lot of, um, well, certainly comedy writing and crime writing is about the difference between people's self-perception and the way the world sees them. And that's the kind of thing you know, in the instance you described, Charles goes in with a certain expectation because he sees himself in a certain way, and then he realizes that, oh no, that's not how they see me. Um, and I think that is a variation that you can just go on playing for as long as you want to. And it works particularly well in comedy and in crime, because in crime you've often got characters who, whose surface appearance is, uh, doesn't betray what they're thinking deep down, almost by definition. You know, if you've got a, a murderer, then not going to say they're a murderer straight away so there's a lot of subterfuge and i think that that is a dynamic that i just really enjoy playing with yeah so you mentioned that obviously you were coming back to this after years away and you'd see the industry change and being reintroduced to it through your wife but i was very interested by your portrayal of social media and even then that was 2013 social media more or less which is almost an entirely different beast to today why did you choose to dig into it to explore this character even though charles himself is so separate even in the book from the world of social media? I just thought that, you know, that was a big change that had happened during the not writing about Charles Paris period. <clears throat> and it was something I should acknowledge. And in fact, I, I mean, I still don't do much social media myself, hardly any. Um, but I, I sort of, I, I remember I got my son to give me his passwords and things so that I could get into what was going on because, you know, there were characters who would use it even if I wouldn't. So, I, I mean, that was a bit of research. And I found it very strange because I sort of spent this, you know, it was only a few days being in uh, social media things. And I felt like a, a sort of inadvertent stalker. I, d I didn't like the feeling at all. And that's really interesting. I think it's very interesting comparing that particular thought about the stalker to how Charles is portrayed as a very flawed character because obviously he has, you know, the drinking problems and the relationship with his wife that have been pervasive through his character portrayal uh, extensively through the series. And it was interesting to see that contrasting with your his his dealing of the modern world of social media and how that was almost a vice to him as well that he was trying to avoid. I thought that was a really strong aspect to how that was portrayed. 
Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, that that's his character. But, and I, I think there also is something kind of slightly voyeuristic about uh, social media in the same way as there is about, um, you know, reality shows on TV, watching uh, ordinary people's lives. You know, you're, you're snooping, really. And and I think he's, I mean, obviously, as a, an investigator, he spends a lot of time snooping. But I think it's something that he's he's quite uncomfortable with. And he shares that with me, I must say. I mean, uh, Charles Harris is very much, <laughs> you know, he is kind of my character in totally different circumstances. Yeah. Um, so I never have a problem with thinking what Charles would think, because it's basically what I would think. But yeah. fortunately, um, I'm, uh, you know, I have advantages that he doesn't like an ongoing marriage and, you know, a probably more successful career than he has. But it's, it's a wonderful way of sort of um, dumping, you know, with, with the character like that. You can, you can sort of expiate unpleasant experiences and make them happen to Charles. I think the other thing that's particularly interesting about his portrayal in this novel is that he's working to try and get himself out of this slump after the, the hiatus that kind of represents your absence from the books as well. Did you feel at the time that you're trying to draw him into the, this modern world that he was working towards pulling through to the other side to achieving redemption? Or was this kind of still just a flux state that he's kind of been in to some extent for most of the series? I mean, I think uh, redemption for Charles Paris would kill the series. <laughs> you know, so he, he can certainly <laughs> aspire to redemption, but he's never going to get it. Um, so, I mean, I quite often, you know, I get e emails and things from people saying, oh, can't you get Charles back with his wife and can't you get him a decent part? And, and I mean, yes, I can, but if it becomes you know, too permanent in either case that he's successful. You know, a successful actor doesn't need to investigate murders, really. He's kept too busy um, being an actor. Um, but, of course, there's an irony that I've now been writing about the character for so long that I've now written 20 books about him. And, you know, the joke is meant to be that he's a very um, unsuccessful actor, that he doesn't get much work. But in fact, if you add up over the books, you know, the number of jobs he's done, and particularly because I've got this running joke of, um, you know, quoting his, his reviews of former performances, um, things like um, Charles Paris's Henry V had me rooting for the French at Agincourt, uh, that kind of thing, which I love writing. But if you add them all up, he's had an extraordinarily successful career. <laughs> he's kind of been out of work at any point. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a kind of, you know, that's just a running joke, really. So, I mean, you can more or less guarantee if the book starts with him rapproching with his wife, Frances, by the end, he will have screwed that up. And if it starts with him getting a wonderful part that is going to revolutionize his career, that's going to get screwed up too. I mean, that's just the dynamic of the series, really. I think that's such a fantastic way to put it. And I've been trying to find a way to describe that to my co-host, Herds, as well. And I think that you've put it really well there. Simon, thank you very much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. I do have to ask before we go, does all of us being in lockdown mean that the next Simon Brett masterpiece will be coming our way sooner? Um, I guess it, in a way it does. I mean, I'm actually the book I'm writing at the moment, which is one of my feathering series and is called Guilt in the Garage. Um, I'm in danger of delivering it early, actually, because, you know, I've had less uh, less distractions. I mean, normally, I, I, you know, if I look at a week and I think I'm just going to be a writer all week, I'll ring a mate and fix to have lunch or something. Well, that's out the window. So I am actually in danger of um, getting there a bit quicker. 
Well, I certainly, for one, am looking forward to that book coming out. Thank you very much for joining us on the show, Simon. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and we hope it won't be the last time. Well, it's a great pleasure, Felix. Thanks, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing A Decent Interval by Simon Brett, chapters 12 to 19, and Hurts, it's time. Let's... We shall begin the dissection of the murder mystery of the century by Simon Brett. Before we begin, <laughs> let's okay. restate, Herds, that yeah. you have a point on the line for this week. A point on the line for if your solution is the same as last week. Yeah. Is it? Yes, more or less. Oh, I'm excited. More or less. I'm, I'm very look, excited. Look, here's the thing. I'm sticking with my claim from earlier that it is uh, Will, uh, is, it, is it Portlock is his name? Yes, Portlock. Portlock. Will Portlock in the backstage area with the bleach and the mascara. I didn't <gasps> quite see mascara coming, uh, but certainly certainly a makeup kill here. Uh, but it turns out that she just fell on her, on her butt and died, which I'm pretty, I'm pretty sad about. And I'm inclined to believe that as well, which makes me very, very disappointed. Uh, but yeah, it, it seems as though we are in fact dealing not just with a manslaughter, but uh, s- sabotage of a person who you didn't even mean to manslaughter. It's mm-hmm. very strange. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm going with rough with the same, uh, a similar uh, theory this week. Um, I have been thinking a lot about it, uh, especially the implications of gender in this novel, as I often do. It seems to be a running theme with me because I was thinking more on the on the Millie theory that I'd pose as my kind of secondary mm-hmm. secondary jab there, uh, and it occurred to me that uh, you know putting putting bleach in the mascara is a very uh, I would say female kind of gendered crime, like messing with someone's makeup. Uh, especially mascara, which is typically a very feminine, uh, you know, product, beauty product, I think is supposed to guide our minds towards a female killer, which to my mind points us towards Millie. But, but, and this is a big but, uh, something something jumped out at me about halfway through the novel that I think is pretty pertinent here. Um, and that is simply that Charles Paris has trouble with calling lady actors actresses. Uh, I think that the novel really goes out of its way. Uh, we were discussing this in the first part, actually, that uh, it is a consistent flaw of his that he thinks of actresses as being female rather than the more the more gender-neutral term actor. And I think that that is supposed to point to us, uh, to point out the fact that though we would consider mascara to be a typically feminine thing and points towards a, femi- a, f- a female doing the crime, ah. I think that that particular thematic there is supposed to point out that it doesn't matter what your gender is. Uh, it doesn't matter. And that not only could uh, Will Portlock have done the deed, uh, but that uh, it, it brings uh, it brings forward that Sam Newton-Reed uh, could be the one killed because they're using uh, the, the mascara on stage to highlight themselves, that sort of thing. That would be a very satisfying way to drag that mechanic back around. I, I would say so, yeah. It, it, you know, it's always one of these things that I love most about mystery novels, getting to the end of them and coming back and seeing the evidence laid out before you as you go back. And I think, Herds, if you're right here, mm. this may be one of the most satisfying rereads you ever go through. Sure. Because yeah. the way that all of the dialogue spins in that direction about the difference between, you know, Charles Paris's perspective on feminism and actual mm-hmm. feminism yep, and yep, the portrayal yep. thereof is going to make it a very, yep. very 
fun look back. Yeah, I definitely think the conversations that uh, Charles has with Frances about, you know, how much they conflict with each other is not directly about gender, but mm. clearly there is a there is a highlight there being made between the two of them and their approaches to relationships. Yeah. Um, I did want to take a slight tangent as well. The, the only thing that is holding me back, I, I still think there is no other better candidate, but the only thing that nags at my mind is the fact that we have seen hardly anything of, of Dear Little Will on screen since the murder happened. But I wanted I want to tell you, you have to indulge me for a second. Okay. I myself, uh the Great Herds, I like to play a little game <laughs> called Mafia. Yes. Um, also known as Werewolf, also known as Chairs of Camelot, doesn't matter. Point is if you're not familiar, it's a social deduction game wherein uh, there is a large group of, of players and there's a smaller informed party who are doing bad things and the larger uninformed party is trying to figure out who that person is. Usually it's a killer or, or a werewolf or whatever mm-hmm. they're trying to find or the mafia and trying to, trying to dig them out. Now, I am under the impression that Will is our killer here. He is characterized by being... Uh, I would say uh, young and full of full of metal, full of uh, boiled iron. I think is the yep, line. I, sure, un- unkempt iron, boiled and full, something like that. Point is, fought and brass. Uh, but he is clearly supposed to be that like young up and coming guy who just wants the best for himself, just wants his father to come out and like see his play and all that sort of stuff. He's inexperienced. He's amateur. Um, it is a very typical strategy. Uh, for inexperienced members of mafia because they can't handle the pressure after they've they've done the kill or done the bad thing in the in the social deduction game to just sit back and not participate. I'm not like that at all. I like to get involved in the issue. That's what gives me away. But that is a very typical kind of strategy for I... new killers, new murderers uh... to take. Um, Hertz, and it's, I love this. Yeah, I love that you're bringing your own approach to game and game theory yes, absolutely. into this because obviously this show gets a bit better. Obviously, this show gets a bit meta with us trying to solve these murder mysteries. Mm-hmm. And here you are yeah. bringing your method for solving a completely different style of game. Yeah. and slapping it on the front of murder mystery. Yeah. And I, I love that approach. Yeah. Obviously, one thing that we've we've teased with this book is that next week on the show, we are going to go through my method of deduction mm. and how I got to the solution in this for sure, book. For sure. But I will tell you, Herds, it is quite different from your own. And <laughs> I mean, that's that's how we be, right? Yeah, that's and, why there's two of us on the show. <laughs> yeah, and I love, I love the way that you've approached this novel in particular because I don't think the way that you've talked about any of the novels we've covered on the show thus far have been even close to the method that you're using here. Yeah. And it's fascinating... For me, who's kind of been set in my ways in mm. solving mysteries the whole time, seeing you with this novel yeah. changing up your approach in such a drastic way. Yes. All this is to say that I think that uh, th- this can be employed in all sorts of detective novels. Mm. It is not it is not uncommon for the killer to be someone who was just on the fridges of your perception. Yeah. Someone who was just out of the spotlight. Um, and Will here, I think, is taking the even more extreme amateur approach of just mm. being nowhere to be seen. Well, quite curiously, the way that I would approach the same piece of evidence, Herds, mm. is that I would say that Will Portlock, if he is the one guilty to this crime, mm. rather than him getting himself out of the way, yeah. out of the spotlight... I would see it as Simon Brett getting him out of the spotlight to <laughs> well, hide indeed. the killer from our obvious Th- this perspective. Is, this is exactly the point, isn't yeah. it? This is a tactic that murder mystery writers use all the time so that your attention is focused on people who definitely couldn't have done the done the murder. And indeed, in, not to tangent too hard, but in the structure of this novel, we have visited witness after witness, uh-huh. getting more information, but each time clearing them of guilt as we've moved between them. Uh-huh. Um, except for Baza, who I think is probably our culprit for the um, 
is, is almost that culprit for the Jared crushing. The crushing, But yes. I don't, I think it will be far too cliche to have a man with that kind of, I would say thug sounding accent. Yes. Like if I want to make a man turn like a thug, I use this voice. And that's the exact voice that Simon Brett uses for his, for his character in the novel. I think that having him being the killer would be a supreme cop out. I see. So now Herds, yeah. you were saying mm. that amateur players, new players at mafia employ the tactic of getting out of the way if they are guilty. And then you said mm. that, Crime writers use this all the time. Are you saying <laughs> that crime writers are no better than brand new mafia players? Well, it's a tr- it's a trick that works, right? Okay. And and for okay. for brand new, like, is the thing experienced players can use this as well and often much more effectively. Ah. But in this particular case, in the case of Will, it's a knee jerk reaction, right? Um, like I see. even in my very first mafia game, I was like, I don't want to get killed. I don't want to be in the spotlight. I don't want to be be taken out of the game. So I just said nothing. I, I was just about to pick up this phone here and dial Simon Brett and <laughs> let him know. <laughs> Look, if we want to talk to Simon Brett about the uh, the benefits of being in a mafia for the for the subject of crime <laughs> writing, I mean, I think that's a conversation we We're can gonna have. We're going to have to go through uh, through Van Dyne first. Of course, of course. Of course, of course. Yeah. Now, Herd, Flex. this is not the direction that I thought this discussion would take. Normally, this is the part of the show where we discuss the mystery. You have accused Will Portlock of yep. using bleached mascara. Yep. Try and put uh, Sam out of the running for playing Hamlet so that he could do it instead. Um, and yeah, in, uh, to clarify, he's obviously a young, passionate actor mm-hmm. and he wants to get his big break. He clearly thinks this is it. Um, and he also mentioned that he's having his father like flown out. And again, the issue of money was brought up in, mm-hmm. you know, who could have done it to to Jared, to Jared Root in the first place. I think we've got the inverse happening excellent, here. Excellent. I don't think that Will is very well off. I think he's paying an awful lot of money to have his father flown mm-hmm. out. And that's, that's part of the reason why he's so bloody desperate. Well, there you go. Herds, I wish you the best of luck with the final chapters as we read on before resuming next week. Let's do it. It's been a pleasure discussing this novel with you in a way that I absolutely would not have expected from this. I didn't think we'd talk about Mafia. I didn't think I'd better sneak that in yeah. there, but we're there. <laughs> You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. That was our discussion on the second part of A Decent Interval by Simon Brett chapters 12 to 19 we will be back with chapters 20 to the end of the book next week thank you very much for joining us and we will see you then 